Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray that the Lord speaks to you as you hear from His Word today. If you'll stand with me, I'll read Song of Songs, chapter 1, starting in verse 1, and you can follow along as I read, either on the screens, on your Bible, or on the app. Solomon's Song of Songs. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the young women love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. We rejoice and delight in you. We will praise your love more than wine. How right are they to adore you? Dark am I, yet lovely, daughters of Jerusalem. Dark like the tents of Kedar, like the tent curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards. My own vineyard I had to neglect. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The Song of Songs is a well-known book of the Bible filled with Jewish love poetry. It was written about a thousand years before Jesus, so it's kind of cool to think that we're studying this morning a book that is over 3,000 years old. Again, the title is Solomon's Song of Songs. That was a Jewish way of saying it was the best of something. The Jews would say, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Well, it's similar. This is Solomon's best song. 1 Kings chapter 4 tells us that Solomon actually wrote 1,005 songs in his lifetime. So this was number one, top of the charts, out of 1,005. Now we might think, what makes Solomon qualified to share marriage advice or relationship advice? I mean, after all, Solomon had had hundreds of wives. Why would we learn something from a man like this? Well, you know, sometimes in life, the people who've experienced the most heartache, the people who've experienced the most pain, and maybe even sometimes those of us who've made the most mistakes have the most to offer the family of God. Because some of us have made mistakes and we can warn somebody else not to make the same mistakes. So many scholars believe that Solomon, at the end of his life, looks back over his life And even though he had done things his own way and had broken God's pattern for marriage, that maybe he remembered his first love. Maybe he remembered what it would have been like or imagine if only he had stayed true to that one and only love. But either way, Solomon has a lot of wisdom and all the words, of course, are inspired by God. So if you have your outline, we'll go ahead and jump in together. This is an ancient book of Jewish poetry with three common views of interpretation. This is an ancient book of Jewish poetry, love poetry, with three common views of interpretation. Number one, the allegorical view. The allegorical view. This means it only has a spiritual meaning. It only has a spiritual meaning. That's what people believe who hold to the allegorical view. Now, an allegory is an extended metaphor. Allegory is not rooted in history or the real world, but is drawn from the mind and imagination of the author. Its purpose is not to present real events and relatable or related to identifiable places and persons, but rather to communicate spiritual truth of an abstract nature. 
allegory used from the earliest days of Greek literature is an old device in which there is a separation from the obvious literal meaning and the high spiritual message. If you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, Pilgrim's Progress is a piece of English masterpiece from the late 1600s. It was probably one of the first books I remember reading and I love the Pilgrim's Progress, but it's an allegory of the Christian life. It's about how the Christian life is ultimately leading to the king himself. There are joys, there are hardships, there are temptations along the way, but we call that an allegory. Another example of allegory would be C.S. Lewis' Chronicles of Narnia, an allegory about how Jesus wins. Ender's Game, some of you've read Ender's Game, or maybe you've watched the movie. Some say it's an allegory about war or the game of war. Now, allegory has a certain number of strengths and a certain number of weaknesses. One of the strengths of this view is that the ancient Jews and early Christians saw it this way. Ancient Jews and early Christians saw it this way. They believed, the ancient Jews believed that it was an allegory of God's love for Israel. And I think to some degree they were right. They read it to believe that God had chosen this people, Israel. He had a special love relationship with them and would one day return to call them back to himself. Early Christians applied this to Jesus. They saw this pattern, how that Christ loves the church and gave himself for the church. And so they saw it as an allegory of Jesus and his bride. So that's a strength Another strength is that this book is filled with metaphors. The very nature of the book lends us towards an allegorical view, at least when we look at the metaphors that are used throughout. What do I mean by that? Well, throughout the book, they complement one another. Solomon compliments his bride. His bride compliments Solomon. And they use these terms to describe one another that seem very, very odd to us. Things like, your hair is like a flock of goats. Your neck is like the tower of David. If we took every verse of that literally, the woman in the Song of Solomon would look like this. (laughs) This is not an attractive woman by any standard, by any stretch of the imagination. So it's helpful for us to see that he's using metaphors throughout the book. Those who insist that every verse of the Bible be taken literally I don't know what they do with the Song of Solomon. Because again, this is poetry. He's using descriptive language. Uh, This is not something we should take literally, at least in that sense of the word. Whenever we think of the allegorical view, it's helpful for us to remember that the metaphors used in the book describe value, not, they describe value, not vision. So in other words, when I tell my wife, your hair, babe, looks like a million bucks. By the way, your hair looks like a million bucks. I'm not saying that her hair is like green, literally, greenbacks. Her hair isn't just green. I'm saying I value her hair. So in Solomon's day, when he said, baby, your hair looks like a flock of goats, we realized that goats, that was the monetary system. You were wealthy or poor, depending on how much livestock you had. And so it makes a little more sense to us 3,000 years later. But that's a strength of the view. Another strength of the view is that God often uses garden imagery to teach spiritual truth. He often uses garden imagery to teach spiritual truth. 
In this particular book, there are echoes of the Garden of Eden throughout. Think about the Garden of Eden before sin. You had a man and a woman. They were completely naked. They were completely vulnerable with one another, and there was no shame. There was complete trust. There was no fear. And so you get that sense as we read through the the book of the Song of Songs. There's this almost this overtone of the Garden of Eden from Genesis 1 and 2. But throughout the Bible, this picture of the garden is used to remind us that Jesus came to one day bring us back into the garden. Adam and Eve sinned and were kicked out of the garden. But one day God's going to lead us back into a better garden, the new heavens and the new earth. And the only way that can happen is because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. John 18:1. Remember the night before Jesus was crucified, he went into the garden of Gethsemane. In John 19:41, the tomb where Jesus was buried was a garden tomb. John 20 verses 14 and 15, when Mary first visited the tomb, she mistook Jesus for the gardener. And in Revelation 21 and 22, one day the new heavens and the new earth are going to feel like a brand new, renewed garden of Eden. And Isaiah 55, 11, when God wanted to talk about his people being revived, his people being drawn back into close relationship, he compared that to a garden. He said, you will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. So there's strengths to the allegorical view, but there are also weaknesses, and I wanna share what these weaknesses are. Personally, I think the weaknesses prevent us from just holding the allegorical view, but you can draw that conclusion on your own. The first weakness, the interpretations often get really, really weird. They get really, really weird. For instance, in chapter four, verse five, he talks about the bride's breasts. And he says in chapter four and verse five, he's describing her beauty. He, he comments on her breasts multiple times. And this week I was reading in church history and I learned that some ancient Jews believed that her breasts represented Moses and Aaron. Now, I don't know how they got that, but they believed it represented Moses and Aaron. Then I read a little more church history this, this week and about 1950 years ago, they thought, some thought that the breasts of the bride represented the old and what would later become the New Testament or the New Covenant. And Jesus was the lover who lied between. And I have to admit, it was hard to maintain my, no no offense, my inner middle schooler. I laughed in my office, right? I'm like, there's no way that's exactly what God was talking about. But there are some in church history who believed that's what he was referring to. Um, I think, personally, that's weird. So number two, Weaknesses of this view, it mentions actual names and places. There's nothing in the text that indicates it's allegory, but the names are not symbolic, but they're real names. In Pilgrim's Progress, names like worldly wise man, giant despair, Mr. Reason are used, but in this book, real names are used. In allegory, places are symbolic. For instance, again, in Pilgrim's Progress, He talks about the slew of despair or of despond, the doubting castle. You just know these aren't real places. But in the Song of Solomon, he mentions Jerusalem, Lebanon, En Gedi, and Terza. 
A third weakness of this view is that some metaphors can't apply, in my opinion, to us and God. Now, there are some metaphors that can, but let me give you an illustration of one of the metaphors that can't. It's chapter eight, verses five through seven. In chapter eight, the woman tries to stir up her husband erotically. She tries to love him. She tries to get his attention with physical love, and she's able to get his attention, and he loves her that much more. Now, theologically, that doesn't really coincide with God's love for us because we don't do things to stir up, to arouse God's love for us. We love him because why? He first loved us. And so that's why the allegorical view, I don't think, can be taken as the only view. Hope that makes sense. If you're taking notes, let's jump into number two, the literal view. The literal view. Some say it only refers to physical love and sexual intimacy. It only refers to physical love and sexual intimacy. There's strength to this view. One strength is that ancient Jews and early Christians saw it this way. You say, Pastor Matt, didn't you say that about the allegorical view? Yes. You see, actually, some of our oldest manuscripts and oldest commentaries, they run neck and neck. Like you're talking 1900 some years old and they're both, one of them might say this is allegory and the other one is saying this is literal. So you can see there was a divide in the perspective of how you interpreted it. The, English, the ancient Jewish rabbi, Akaba or Akiva, was appalled by the literal trans- interpretation. About 2000 years ago, he was irate to learn that some of the Jews were taking the words of the Song of Songs and it set them to music and were singing them in the taverns. And so he wrote, writes this scathing denunciation. How could anybody take it literally? So there you can see by his critique that there were people who took it literally. Many early Christians saw this book as a beautiful example of real romance between two people that exalts God's gift of friendship, relationship, desire, attraction, sex, and marriage. So that's a, that's a strength of this view. Another strength is that we've discovered thousands of familiar poems, actually hundreds of thousands of poems have been discovered from ancient Mesopotamia, Egypt, Ugarit, uh, Phoenicia, Sumer, really all over the known world. In the last 150 to 200 years, hundreds of thousands of documents have been discovered, and thousands of those were love poems. Since the beginning of humanity, we've been obsessed with what we love the most. And so there's a lot of writing about sex that goes back as early as we can find records. And the interesting thing about many of them is that they coincide with the way the Song of Songs is written. And so maybe before 200 years ago, they were wondering, could this really be something that that is genuine, that's legit? And now that they've discovered all these documents, the historians believe that this is God's way, at least the Christian historians, of speaking in a language that the ancient world understood. They understood love poetry. But from God's perspective, he reminds them that he's the author of love. He's the author of sex. And he wrote this in a way the world at that time could understand. But there are weaknesses to this view. One weakness is this. Sex has always made the church uncomfortable. Sex has always made the church uncomfortable. 
I brought two shirts today because I knew in the first service I was going to sweat through one of them, right? And I'm going to do the same thing for the whole series. Sex has always made the church and its pastors uncomfortable. As the church became more organized and formed denominations, the leaders in power actually began to, think of this, punish any teacher who took the literal approach to the Song of Songs. Let me introduce you to this guy. His name is Theodore of Mopsuestia. He was from the fourth century, and he, as a commentator, as a pastor, he interpreted the Song of Songs literally. He said, this is a document about a man and a woman and their God-given ordained love. Well, in the Council of Constantinople in 353, see, what was it, 553 AD, his commentaries were destroyed. He was banned from the church and they made it illegal to take his approach to the Song of Solomon. Kind of an interesting fact about the church. Jovian, a Roman monk, I couldn't find a painting of him, but he may have looked something like this. I think I would have liked Jovian from what I read about him this week. Jovian, a Roman monk, believed that his religion had been affected by asceticism, that Plato had actually affected his own religion. And he had been brought up to believe that there should be a separation between the worldly and the spiritual and that somehow the, the worldly was bad. And by worldly, I don't mean evil. I just mean things like pleasure and marriage and good food and fun was somehow bad, which actually led him to become a monk. And the more that he studied, he realized that he had been duped into believing that somehow he was more spiritual because of his position. Well, needless to say, they didn't like Jovian either. And I've got two heroes from church history, Augustine and Jerome. I like both of these guys, but Augustine and Jerome, I think, made the wrong call. And they actually condemned Jovian and excommunicated him because he took a literal view to the Song of Songs. Early in the history of the church, you can see Plato's influence. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, it writes this. The Spirit clearly says that in latter times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. They forbid people to marry, think of that, and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Now, my goal today isn't to pick on any one version of Christianity or any one denomination, but you see it through the entire spectrum. The Catholics, we find that the early popes declared that the priests must be celibate. They made provisions for those who were married when they first made that call and said, okay, even though we, since we just made the rule, you can live with your spouse but you have to live with her like she's your sister. And all subsequent priests have been prohibited from taking a bride. We see it in the Protestant uh, denominations. There are teachings that I have heard that you are more spiritual if you don't marry. And they take that from Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul acknowledged not everybody has the desire to be married. Not everybody does. It's actually a gift a gift from God if he's given you that gift without having the desire to be married. 
But that's one of those exceptions. It, it doesn't make me more spiritual because I am married, and it doesn't make you more spiritual because you're not married. God says he just has different plans for different people. My great-grandpa used to live just a few miles from here, over here on Sand Plant Road, just down from where the ridges are. My great-grandpa, from what I'm told, he died before I was born, so I never talked to him. He was, a, he was a preacher. He was an evangelist. He actually traveled for 22 years for the Davis Child Shelter here in Charleston, raising money uh, to fund their ministry. He actually, um, he actually died, I think, about two or three years before I was born. But my grandpa, I'm told, had the belief that you should not even have sex with your wife unless it was for procreation. That the only reason you should have sex with your spouse is to procreate, and if you're not gonna procreate, you should not have sex. Now again, I don't know if that's true or not, that's what I'm told, but it would also explain why he had 13 kids, <laughs> right? Yeah, let me find a Bible reason, sure enough, yeah? But God says this is a gift. So this week, uh, as I'm reading, I, I find that from Augustine to, to Luther, that's about a thousand years of church history. For about a thousand years of church history, the book of the Bible that had the most commentaries written about it was the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon. Now, why do you think that is? I have a hunch, and this is just a hunch. It's kind of like when you tell your kids, don't touch the wet paint, right? Do not touch the wet paint. What are they gonna do? They're gonna to touch the wet paint. So you had all these religious leaders telling everybody, you're not supposed to think about this. You're not supposed to look at this. Well, what do they do? They write commentaries on it because that's just the way we're wired. And so I'm suggesting that there is a better way. There's a second weakness to this view, and that is we're tempted to love the gift more than the giver. We're tempted to love the gift more than the giver. Is there anything wrong with eating food? Yes or no? No. Can you love food too much? Yeah. Is there anything wrong with shopping? No. Can you love shopping too much? Sure you can. The same is true with wine. The same is true with sex. God puts some caution signs and he says, hey, here's a caution sign. Take heed. This is, this is like fire. It, it can keep you warm, but it can also be very, very dangerous. So let's not put a stop sign where God has put a caution sign. But throughout this series, I, I want to put up plenty of caution signs to make sure that we remember that sex is a gift from God, but that sex is not God. There's a third and final view, and you already know this is where it's going. This is my preferred view, and you don't have to agree with me, but I wanna share with you my view. It's actually gonna color everything else I teach on for the next five weeks, and I call it the illustrative view. The illustrative view. It believes that the Song of Songs is about a real physical relationship that illustrates a spiritual reality. It's about a physical relationship, a literal, real relationship that illustrates a physical reality. It kind of combines number one and number two. It says that the meaning is more than literal, but it's not less. The meaning is more than literal, but it's not less than literal. So I think there is some significance to say that Israel, ancient Israel, certainly could have read this book and thought about God's choice for them, 
how much God loves them, how God is gonna return for them. I think it's a beautiful illustration. I think the church should see it as a picture of how Christ loves his bride and Christ cares and nurtures his bride. But it's still literal. It's the literal physical marriage relationship that points to these spiritual truths. Ian Proven in the NIV application commentary writes this, we do not need to choose between literal and allegorical interpretation of the Song of Songs as earlier generations of Christian readers felt they had to. There's no good reason to see erotic earthly love as problematic, either in itself or in its ability to speak by analogy of the divine human relationship. You see, Jesus actually combined both views. Jesus honored the physical relationship of men and women in marriage, in holy matrimony, but he also said it had spiritual application. The New Testament combines both views. Matthew or Ephesians chapter five, verses 21 through 33. Church leaders have historically combined both views. There's two church leaders that I'll point out. And anytime you're trying to prove a point, it's helpful to find the people who agree with you. It's a little warning. I'm gonna do just that right now. Uh, there was a guy by the name of Origen. He was born about 150 years after Jesus. And Origen wrote multiple untold number of commentaries in his lifetime. We agree with a lot of what Origen said. We, agree with, we disagree with some of what he said. But he actually studied this issue. And interestingly, he wrote 10 commentaries on the illustrative view. He said that it's about a literal physical relationship, but it has illustration to spiritual reality. John Calvin believed the same thing. Calvin believed that it was the holiness of the marriage bed was to be honored, was to be celebrated, but it was also a picture of a greater spiritual truth, and that is God's love for his people. Now, we just have about four or five minutes left, and so I want you to work with me. We're gonna read a few verses and see if you can see this. See if it jumps out to you like it's jumped out to me this week, and then we're gonna pray and be done. So we're looking for literal relationships that point to spiritual truths. Verse two of Song of Songs, chapter one. Notice what the woman says. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. This is the verse I would love for my wife to make her life verse, right? Right, babe? Memorize it in six different languages. Let him kiss me with a kiss. Anyway, I'm gonna keep moving on. Here we go. Um, the book begins with the girl desiring or expressing her desire for physical expression of love by her lover. They're not yet married but she really wants to be. In soon order, you're gonna see he really wants to be. And they're gonna get engaged quickly. And their engagement is going to be short. And they're gonna get married quickly. And they fight, as hard as it is, they're fighting to reserve this part of physical love for marriage. But she is attracted to him. And he is attracted to her. The word love in verse two is the Hebrew word dod or dodim. It refers to acts of physical affection in response to emotional affection. This is a beautiful Hebrew word. This is what separates us among a thousand other things from the animals. This is not a word that's just expressing a desire for a hookup. 
This is a word that says, I, my soul is enmeshed with your soul. I'm emotionally connected to you and with you. And I long to be physically connected, just like we are emotionally connected. One commentator says, this is the mingling of the souls. And man, this is a beautiful gift from Almighty God. Verse three, pleasing is the fragrance of your perfume. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the young women love you. In those days, women seldom bathed, or excuse me, men seldom bathed. They were out working, they were shepherds. So they would douse themselves with oil to cover up the stench. I knew some, had some friends like that. You know, they never bathed, but somehow like Axe body spray saves the day. You're like, dude, you can pour a gallon of Axe body spray on that and it's still not gonna fix it. But anyway, we see she's desirous of his name, of his character. She's attracted physically. She's attracted spiritually. Verses five and six. Dark am I, here's our lesson. Dark am I, yet lovely daughters of Jerusalem. Dark like the tents of Kedar, like the tent curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards. My own vineyard, though, I had to neglect. What's happening here? She's a working woman. Some reason her father isn't on the scene. Scholars believe that he was either dead or for some reason he wasn't part of the picture. So she, with her sisters and her brothers, have to tend to the vineyard. And in that day, women were most attractive if they weren't tanned, if they weren't dark. The fair-skinned women were the most attractive, which is interesting, brings up another point we'll talk about next week, that throughout history, the, the standards have changed for women for what is beautiful. Doesn't really seem fair to me. The standards have stayed the same for men all throughout centuries. But for women, it seems like one century, if they're fair, they're attractive. The next century, if they're dark complected, if they're tanned, they're attractive. But nevertheless, she's just expressing the reality of where she is. And, and she's telling her, her beloved, she's, she's telling her, her man, I, I, I'm, I'm tanned by the sun. I had to work. My brothers made me do it. I'm sorry, but this is who I am. And we're gonna see throughout this series that she does all that she can to keep herself and to make herself attractive. And, and she puts on perfume and he puts on perfume and, and they care for one another by taking care of themselves. But here's the picture. She realizes that she's not perfect and he loves her anyway. She realizes that she's not perfect and he loves her anyway. What do you think that could be a picture of? Don't you see Jesus in verses five and six? Here's Jesus looking at us and he knows we're not perfect, but he loves us anyway. Romans chapter five says that God commended, he showed his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so as we go through the next six weeks, I want to encourage you, yes, be looking for the physical relationship. Yes, men, get some tips, get some wisdom. Women, get some tips, get some wisdom. But above all things, let's remember that there's not one of us that bring perfection into any of our relationships. We all bring brokenness and we all bring mess. But Jesus loved us anyway. And we can do the same thing 
with one another. Here's the main point from this message today. Earthly relationships make us long for eternal relationships. Earthly relationships make us long, should make us long for eternal relationships. C.S. Lewis wrote this. The books or the music, we could substitute sex right here, in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them, it only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they will turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not yet found, the echo of a tune we have not yet heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. Earthly relationships make us long for eternal relationships. Here's my encouragement to you this morning. Throughout this series, dive in with me. Throughout this series, don't just punch in, punch out on Sunday morning, but let me encourage you to really seek to go deeper with Jesus and to seek to, to, to deepen your relationships with the people in your life. One way to do that is maybe for you, it's reading the Song of Songs every morning. It's just eight chapters. Think if you did that every day for this month, for five, six weeks, what it would do to your heart. Maybe it's to go today and check out the app and check out the resources and, and go ahead and sign up for a conference. You realize there's some areas that you and your spouse could work on. Sign up for a conference. Just go, get away. Or maybe it's, it's to, to dive into the outline that I gave you. Whatever it is, just thank God for the intimacy he's already given you, but realize he never gave you that physical human relationship to meet every one of your needs. He didn't. When I entered marriage, when Sarah and I got married 18 and a half years ago, I thought God gave her to me to meet every single one of my needs and that she was going to satisfy every single one of my needs. It wasn't to, even, we didn't even get through the honeymoon before I realized that's not God's design. For her, we hadn't even left the parking lot before she realized that wasn't gonna work out for me, Right? So as we come into this, yes, let's, let's love our relationships. Let's love our spouses. Let's love our children. Let's love one another. But let's stop trying to make us each other Jesus and realize that earthly relationships are designed to make us long for the heavenly, eternal relationships. This past week, I read the story of this couple, the Chappelle family, Warren and Joan Chappelle, this couple, this New York family, just celebrated their 70th anniversary back in November. Warren was 92 and Joan was 87. This past week, both Warren and Joan passed away. Joan on Sunday and Warren a few hours later after midnight on Monday. Warren is a World War II vet and a fuel company service technician. Joan was a seamstress and a homemaker. They also owned and operated a woodworking and doll furniture business. Warren's routine began seven years ago when Alzheimer's forced Joan into a nursing home and he moved in with his son's family. He started up his little sports car every morning to make the 10-mile trek over to see Joan at the nursing home. For seven years, he fed her breakfast 
and he sat with her for two or three hours until he got tired and had to come home and take a nap. By evening, he came every night at five o'clock to feed her dinner, and he would stay for two or three hours. And one interview said the only reason he would ever leave early is if the Mets were playing, but he believed that Joan would understand. Warren started this routine when he was 85. As the disease, Alzheimer's, robbed his wife's mind and memory, only sickness and bad weather could keep him away. Their son, Mark, wrote this this week. My dad lived for my mom. He kept her alive with love. Nine weeks after their 70th anniversary, on January 28th, just a few weeks ago, Warren visited Joan for the final time. With his esophageal cancer worsening, Warren became too weak to make the trip, and so he mustered up the strength to walk in the room one last time just to say goodbye. A few weeks later, this past Sunday, Joan died first. His son Mark was not surprised the next morning, Monday morning, to walk into the room and find out a few hours later that his dad died next. Did Joan die because she knew Warren was dying? Did Warren die because he knew Joan was dying? No one may ever know. But Warren and Joan died in separate beds, miles apart. But it was if they were setting hand in hand as they had done for 70 years, connected by love. Last night, I went on a date with my wife. We checked out New taco place in Hurricane, whiskey tacos. It was good food, neat place. We came back, had a great evening, got up this morning. And when I read that story, it just moved me to realize I don't have an eternity on this earth with her. I don't have an eternity on this earth with my children. I don't have an eternity on this earth with you. Let's make our relationships count. And by God's grace through Jesus, we will have an eternity together. But let us see Jesus in the relationships he's given us now. And let's work on it with all we've got these five or six weeks. Let me pray for you as I pray for me. Father, thank you for what you're doing in our church. And Father, I pray that you would use this series to draw us closer together and closer to you. Help us to see that these earthly relationships are designed to make us long for Jesus and eternal relationships. God, I pray right now that you will speak to hearts, that you will soften hearts. Lord, we husbands like to think we have it all together, and we don't. None of us do. Soften the hearts of some husbands. Soften the hearts of some wives. Lord, for those who are single, those who are dating, those who are engaged, I pray that you would teach all of us how to live in these earthly relationships in a way that has heavenly ramifications. Once again, thank you for joining us this week. We look forward to serving you in next week's podcast, along with our weekend services every Sunday morning at 9 and 11 a.m.